Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Coal use in the United States is on the decline, with overall consumption down by nearly half over the past decade. Yet the trend of falling demand for coal in the U.S. isn't reflected internationally. In fact, the International Energy Agency forecasts that global coal use will increase over the coming decade. Why is it that coal use persists, despite intensifying efforts of citizens, industry, and governments to turn to cleaner alternatives? On today's podcast, I'll be talking with my colleague Anna Mikulska, who recently published a report on the persistence of coal entitled The Long Goodbye, Why Some Nations Can't Kick the Coal Habit. Anna will walk us through the reasons that coal remains attractive and what's driving an increase in global coal demand. And we'll also talk about policy solutions that may slow and reverse the trend. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Anna, you have two roles. You're a senior fellow here at the Climate Center and also a non-resident scholar at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. Tell us about the focus of your work and research into the coal market. So I really started looking into coal because it has a lot to do with um, the two countries that I'm probably the most familiar with, uh, my native Poland and my adopted country, the U.S. Um, and the countries could not be, a, could not be different uh, when it comes to how they approach coal currently. U.S. nowadays is abandoning coal in favor of natural gas, and Poland is still kind of holding on to coal and keeping it as an important part of its energy mix. Um, Though the consumption is falling in Poland, um, the country still uses coal to support 50% of its energy use and 80% of electricity is produced from coal. So the comparison between Poland and the U.S. made me, of course, think um, about the underlying reasons and whether these reasons are idiosyncratic or maybe systemic. And my analysis really kind of... um, tries to point to the systemic reasons for coal use and why in some countries this coal use can decrease and in other countries um, you will see that, that they hold on to coal or the use of it increases. So despite efforts to wean ourselves off of coal, globally coal use isn't declining. How much coal are we using and how much are we likely to use in the future? I think it is important to mention that there's two ways in which we can look at the call. We can look at the call use as percentage of uh, of energy used, or we can look at the call as the volume. And many times what we hear in the media is, you know, nowadays we use approximately just below the 30% of call in the global energy mix. Um, in the future, this will decline. And this is actually the case. We, we, see, we do see declines. But what many people do not mention at the same time that as the energy demand globally increases, a lower proportion of coal in the energy mix doesn't necessarily mean that the volume also decreases. So as we go actually forward, what we see in the next 20 years is that the volumes actually stay the same. Uh, By staying the same, well, this means that also the emissions are likely to stay the same. Uh, bearing some, you know, technological advances and so on. And if that's the case, well, then we have a problem (laughs) because what we're trying to achieve with the climate action is we're trying to decrease emissions. Um, Not necessarily proportion of coal, that's part of our energy mix. We are trying to decrease emission. And if the volume stays the same, 
in the current technological state, in the current, uh, you know, uh, at the current level of technology and advancement, well, we are likely to stay at the same emission levels, and that becomes a problem. So what trends are we seeing in coal use specifically? So we see that falling coal use in the developed countries. Um, but this fall in use of coal is actually offset by rising demand in the developing world. Uh, rising living standards drive energy demand. Um, the population itself isn't necessarily the biggest issue, although it contributes, but when it combines with development from a underdeveloped of an agricultural society to an industrial society, well, one of the identifying features, uh, one of the identifying features of this uh, move to an industrial society is enormous increase in energy demand. And that's what basically the developing world is going through now, um, particularly now in Asia, um, Southeast Asia. But this is what we're going to see going further also, what we already actually see in Africa, but it's also going to be more pronounced going forward, maybe, you know, 20 years or so, when the, when Africa actually develops from a larger base. You know, there's a really interesting online tool that you showed me once. It's called the Global Coal Plant Tracker. It graphically shows the reality of, of this change, and it's pretty yes. pretty shocking stuff. So we've got falling coal use in developed countries offset by rising mm -hmm. demand in developing regions. How does rising living standards also play into this? So, right, it's actually very important because we do see the, that coal use decreases in the developed world. And partially it decreases because of rising standards of life. Because at some level of income, people now are interested not only in a better home, better car, they are interested actually in a better quality of life in terms of um, not having to breathe in smog and, and, and so on. And they look for, you know, clean water and so on. So when the standard of life increases, you know, to very high levels, then you see that the emissions actually can uh, also go down. But also, when you think about the economies, um, when economies move from the industrial, which the developed countries have been for a while, to a more um, based on services, which we do see now, in, especially we have seen in the developed world, when you think about it, the industrial world is much more energy intensive than the one that's based on services. So uh, developmentally, um, the developed world is kind of set for decreasing emissions in relations to development level. This is not the case for the developing world. So the developing world is at the stage where it's moving from the agricultural society, which uses relatively less energy than an industrial society. So you have this kind of movement of the standard of life increases, but the increase at this stage, the increase in the standard of life, uh, it means using more energy and less. Um, so this is very important to kind of see that the reason why we see increase in the developing world, um, increase in use of energy and then also in terms of use of coal is because we see that those countries are developing into more industrial societies. And by that, it means that they're using more energy. So China is by far the largest consumer of coal and it accounts for about half of total global coal consumption. At the same time, I understand that many Chinese coal plants are being closed and plans for new plants are being canceled. How much does this change China's demand for coal? Um, 
Actually, it does. So interesting part about China is that this is the one country in the developing Asia where we will see the demand for coal decreasing in the next 20 years. That's what we'll see in the outlooks by IEA, EIA, the BP outlook. They all kind of, uh, you know, they might differ in terms of the volumes that they see uh, now versus 2040, for example, but they also decrease in coal use in China. And part of it is, yes, it is um, because of the cancellations of potentially new plants that were planned before or the fact that there is a lot of coal plants that are being uh, closed down. However, a couple of caveats to this. Um, the truth is that the coal plants that China is currently closing are usually old and inefficient. And often they are actually very close to urban areas. Mm-hmm. Being inefficient, old, they are also impacting the not only the CO2 levels, but they're impacting the air quality, right? So with the growing middle class, China has faced the demands of cleaner air and so on. And that's kind of, you know, when you have old coal-fired power plants, they are being closed. But China, so if you go into the the coal uh, tracker, you also see that there's actually quite a lot of coal plants being built. Currently in China? Currently in China, Despite all the cancellations. Despite of the cancellations. So if you go there, you can see there's quite a lot of them being built. Now, a, a lot of it is further out, away from from cities so they do not directly impact uh, air quality but they still do impact you know some of the co2 uh, levels they're more efficient so they're not as dirty or they're not as polluting as the old plants uh, coal plants but it me- doesn't mean that they're not there so part of the you know uh, lower use of coal is yes we will see some cancellations of of of, uh, of coal plants you will see china relying more on, on natural gas uh but also you will have new plants that are more efficient. So they use less coal for the same energy that they produce. But it doesn't mean that they will disappear. Got it. So, so in your research, you point out several reasons that coal does remain attractive. What are the, the – and you pointed out three critical areas. What are those areas? So coal can become attractive on different bases. Um, sometimes – Countries will actually enact policies uh, that will provide support for coal. Um, for it could be for political reason, right? It could be um, for electoral reasons, and we've seen that primarily jobs, for example. For example, with for example with jobs, um, but they often are actually you know combined. The jobs are electoral, the economic, electoral reasons, and so on. But that's when you see the policy kind of movement. To either, you know, to, towards coal. Um, for the same policy or electoral reasons, the move can be completely opposite. You can move actually away from coal. And that's also, you've seen that um, in, in depending on which country you're looking at. Um, market is very important too. So if coal is the cheaper option, it is more likely that it's going to be used. Of course, this is, can be conditional on other elements uh, and on other considerations, but this can be the case. So some of these considerations can be, and one probably one of the most important is energy security, right? So if coal is cheaper or if coal is the cheapest and at the same time is available domestically, 
whereas, for example, natural gas is more expensive and has to be imported, then the countries have already two strikes against uh, other sources of uh, of energy um, because it is always more secure to have source of energy within your country than having to import it from somewhere else. Well, that's a prime example. Uh, Poland's a prime example. Of right. That, right. Right. So Poland is its prime example where energy security considerations um, are important for for keeping coal still um, as part of the energy mix, um, just because there is very limited or there's limited uh, natural uh, natural gas domestic supplies of natural gas. Um, the rest has to be brought in. Until now, a lot of this has been brought in from Russia. There's a really big push now to go away from, you know, uh, from the Russian uh, imports and uh, replace them from, uh, with imports from the U.S., uh, uh, from Norway, from Qatar, uh, because uh, they are not as geopolitically driven. They they won't, you know, they, they they won't provide as much of geopolitical power to those countries. It's it's more diversified and so on. That being said, it doesn't shelter or, you know, it doesn't help this country if those imports become very expensive, right? So this energy security elements uh, brings in the consideration of cost as well. Uh, it's not only geopolitics, it's also the cost that will matter for energy security, whether a country has an immediate access to energy sources that are, you know, a reasonable price. Even in some of the developed countries, we've seen some slide back to coal. And I'm thinking here about Germany, which uses coal, or where coal use is rising following anti-nuclear backlash that stems in the Fukushima uh, Mm -hmm. disaster in Japan. Why aren't we seeing a move toward natural gas as an alternative? Why specifically back to coal? You know, we're here in the United States. Natural gas has been the obvious alternative. So Germany is interesting case, and it's a it's a it's probably a different case from from any others in a way that at the same time when you've seen that backlash against nuclear power, you have also seen the strong move towards um, renewable energy. Uh, it's called Energiewende. The program Energiewende kind of was was really focused on how to bring in more renewable. Uh, power and get rid of fossil fuels altogether. And without nuclear power to compensate, uh, this has become really a problem uh, because renewables are not not sufficient uh, given their intermittency. Uh, so you need some kind of a backup power. You need a baseload power. And if you don't have nuclear, that baseload power can be either hydro for renewable, which uh, you know, which is limited in its own because it really is limited by natural resources like uh, like rivers within a specific country. It's coal and it's natural gas. Coal is available domestically in Germany at a relatively uh, low price. Gas is not, um, which means Germany has to bring it from somewhere else. Um, Germany does bring in the most of its gas um, from Russia. In fact, it's actually Russia's largest, uh, it's largest in Europe importer of of, of Russian gas. 
Um, it has a relatively good relationship with Russia and, and it's, uh, you know, the fact that it actually is building a new pipeline against uh, much of what many of the Central and Eastern European countries want. That will The pipeline that will bring Nord Stream 2, that will bring uh, more gas from Russia, kind of shows that uh, Germany will focus on more natural gas. But there is, it's just not enough of it. At, at least at this moment. And there's always going to be this consideration of if you become too reliant on Russia, well, does this bring Russia, one, more economic power in terms of bargaining, uh, and two, more geopolitical power, right, um, in terms of being able to um, influence a country politically uh, based on that country's dependence on Russian gas. Um, Germany is more comfortable with it because it's a large market and Russia depends on Germany. Both sides depend on so each other. So both sides depend on each other. And, and I think that's why in many ways Germany is more comfortable with it. Uh, other countries are not as comfortable and you see this in Poland. Poland has actually said that after the long-term contract expires with Russia in 2022, starting 2023, Poland would not import any more Russian gas. Really? That's pretty yes. dramatic. Yes. Uh, so that's, uh, that's uh, you know, so that's... Something you either go to coal or expensive LNG imports. Uh, it will not go back to... Well, it will use coal, but uh, it, will, it won't increase probably its use of coal. Mm-hmm. The Polish company Picnic has already signed uh, actually enough long-term contracts with U.S. companies um, to supply Poland with LNG. Uh, given its domestic, you know, uh, its domestic uh, supply and a potential new supply in Norway, you actually Poland would, could actually have more gas than its needs hmm. uh, in 2023. Now, whether this would be cheaper than the Russian gas, um, yes and no. <laughs> yes, uh, because. It will be probably cheaper, and that's actually they, they, they already showed that it would be 25% cheaper than what Poland pays now for Russian gas. Really? Yes. The prices that are set now in the long-term contract. However, it probably wouldn't be cheaper than what Russia would offer Poland in 2023. Because Russia, there are alternatives uh, now. So uh, they, well, Russia can undercut any type of pretty much LNG price because of how cheap it is to produce that gas and how to, how cheap it is is going to be on, you know to send it through the already existing pipelines. Uh, the thing is, well, Poland doesn't seem to want to kind of go for it based on its previous experience with Russia. So you will actually see uh, bringing in more natural gas uh, one thing with respect to coal is that this natural gas that's going to be brought from U.S. or Norway or Qatar does not seem to be replacing coal. So coal is going to kind of, you know, at, at this moment, the, the way it's predicted, coal is going to be staying at the same kind of amount. What this new gas is going to do is going to feed into new energy demand. Or, or and is going to be potentially sent to other countries that might need that gas, including Ukraine. Colleagues of yours at the Baker Institute provided testimony in Congress where they pointed out that the last great build-out of coal in the U.S. took place in the 70s and the 80s. Mm -hmm. Due to plant lifespan and the need to earn back investment, once you build, you're locked into coal power potentially for the next 30 or 40 years. Are we seeing a similar danger with coal build-out 
in places such as India today? There is probably some truth to this. However, you would probably need a technological advancement that would make those new power plants that are now being built and they projected to, you know, live another 30, 40 years. Um, you would need some technological advancement that would make those plants, um, you know, too expensive, right? Because once they build, uh, well, then, then, then it's just you, you know, you, you already have you have sunk cost, so using them becomes cheaper often. Um, compared to other sources of power. Now, if there is another source that can be cheaper than using those plants that already where you already you sunk that cost, well, then you can abandon them. For now, it's probably not the case. But that's why you actually see that investment, right? People who invest or companies that invest, governments that invest in that, they they look into the prospects going into next 20 years or, or 30 years and say, well, you know what? The prospects are, the way we see it now, is that they will be still economical. And if they don't, well, then we haven't we haven't really, you know, lost anything anyways because we end up with, with very cheap, um, with other cheap supply. But for now, uh, they do seem economic. And that's why we see the buildup in India and uh, and, and China. Um, also because these countries will be developing at a very high uh, rate. Now, in U.S., this is a very different uh, a very different environment because U.S. has domestically available natural gas that's cheap, cheaper than you know anywhere else pretty much. And it's uh, cleaner the coal, so coal gets pushed out. And then there is no point on, of investing your money uh, seeing that this is the case, that you will, you will have this cheap gas. And U.S. is also at a different stage of development. You do see push for cleaner energy. And I mean, the Green New Deal is, is probably, you know, the kind of more extreme embodiment of, of, of that push. But generally, that's what you kind of expect in the developed world, that the policies and people preferences will be pushing out the dirty fuels like coal. And, and, and that's why the investors are going to think twice if, if they would like to invest in that kind of, um, in, for example, uh, coal-fired power plants. You, you know, going off of what you just said, one of the big, one of the, the, the perspectives here uh, that we have in the West, in the United States, the developed world, is that um, the reason to get away from coal is because of the climate problem, right? Mm-hmm. And you have written that climate change is a diffuse problem and therefore may not be a good motivator for change of the energy system. Maybe we think about it here, but in other places it's not necessarily so. Can you explain? Climate change is very different from the concerns about air quality, right? Air quality will affect people directly, and you can, you can definitely feel the effects of smog on your health, and you can measure them much easily. It becomes a more immediate need, to uh, uh, to address it, and it becomes more problematic uh, politically, economically, and so on. Climate change is different uh, because it the CO two emissions. We don't see the CO two emissions. We don't feel them. 
we don't experience them the way that we experience other emissions that create smoke. It's not local. It's and it's not local, right? So you know the emissions that will be emitted, in, the CO two emissions that you know they go uh, all the way into the atmosphere and then they just you know affect the whole globe. And we don't really know you know how much the emissions from China or India contribute to this or that. Um, and in a way, it's 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 hard to to kind of to address something that's so diffuse and that also won't work right now, right? So when you have smoke created by, you know, by coal-fired power plants, it creates it right now. The same uh, coal-fired power plants that create CO2 emissions, these emissions, that the CO2 will work for years, right? And so it's not only diffuse in space, it's also diffuse in time, and by that, it's very hard to address it because now, you know, you have to find what it means, what real effect it has, how it affects uh, people. Uh, uh, and there is also a whole host of other things that have effect on, on climate and, and so on or, or, or on, on weather. And people confuse those very often. So uh, recently on this podcast, uh one of my guests was Rachel Kite, who's Chief Executive Officer of Sustainability for All. And that's a, a UN-affiliated organization that, that its work focuses on reaching the UN sustainability goals for, for energy. And, and we talked about the challenge of electrifying and reaching net zero emissions when, for so many developing countries, coal is the immediate scalable mm-hmm. solution. Um, given the challenges that we've spoken about thus far, what solutions might make alternatives, such as renewables, nuclear, et cetera, more attractive to these countries that are looking towards cheap coal to fuel the expansion of their standards of living? So I think in many ways the issue is in that how this question is asked. And I think it actually the question um, very much exemplifies one of the problems uh, that I see with uh, the way many people do approach climate action. So one thing that we have to ask is, what is the climate action about? What do we want to achieve by climate action? And when many people will focus on, well, how to replace the fossil fuels with renewables, this is not really the goal of climate action. Um, the goal of climate action is actually combating emissions. And this is a very different goal than, you know, replacing one type of fuel with another type of fuel. Uh, And if we put a goal of climate action as limiting emissions, then we actually can come up or can arrive on much wider um, many more ways in which climate action can be addressed or climate issues can be addressed. So yes, definitely it can be addressed by moving to cleaner energy in a way that we understand it now by moving to renewables um, because renewables do not emit CO2. The problem with them is that they are intermittent, that we still haven't figured out um effective or efficient enough energy storage that can kind of combat this uh, intermittency and allow, um, for example, industry to develop on the basis of renewables only without the need for backup power or base, base, uh, base load. 
So when we look only into how to, you know, replace fossil fuels with renewables, we are just looking at one side of the spectrum. When we look at the fact that, you know, going forward, the prediction is that we'll still be using, we as a world, we still be using a lot of coal, a lot of fossil fuels that will generate emissions. Well, then we are kind of, if we only focus on renewables and replacing this, we are almost losing our sight or or, or I kind of losing what, what reality can very much be and are not focusing on another set of solutions that could potentially work as well, which is, can we decarbonize some of our or, or all of our uh, use of the fossil fuels? Or how could we decarbonize it? Or how can we, you know, extract CO2 from the environment to, you know, to decrease emissions, to decrease the, the effect that CO2 has on, on us? Um, Again, it's not to advocate one or another. It's actually advocate all of the above. Uh, because we really don't know where the next technological advancement is coming from. We are searching. And if we limit ourselves in terms of how much of solutions can we search for, well, then we might be missing something. So let me ask you this. Given the high cost of many of these solutions today, alternatives to coal, mm-hmm. How do we, as rapidly as possible, bring the cost of those solutions down to a point where they're more easily adopted in, in, in places as alternatives to coal? Well, for now, we don't have those solutions yet. And when what, what you need when you don't have solutions, you need R&D. <laughs> and when you look you know, across different countries, the countries that have money for R&D are the developed countries. Uh, the countries that are developing, um, they will be less likely to invest in R and D when they have, uh, you know, they, when they have to cover a lot of expenses and they they already have uh, issues with, you know, with with supporting their development, supporting their, their their population and so on. So we need to kind of look at the developed world as the leader here, um, and developed world probably should not shy away from that. Uh, For once, uh, it developed uh, on on the basis of use of fossil fuels. So it has contributed to quite heavily to to, to the level of CO2 in the atmosphere we we are currently experiencing. And second, well, it is interested in a more sustainable world, cleaner environment, uh, combating climate change and so on. Um, of course, there's this concern about, you know, free riding and, and so on. So there's there's all there has to be a dialogue that will exist between the developed world and the developing countries. Um, and I think a goodwill is a very important uh, part to it. One way to start would be to make sure that in this dialogue that's happening between the developed and the developing world, we don't necessarily vilify use of certain fuels, right? Oftentimes, you you, kind of, you know you you kind of see this this narrative where these guys are using or are you know the bad fossil fuels. They don't care, and then you have the oh these guys are the good guys who are you know who are using more renewables. And I don't think really it's in that. Uh, good guy, bad guy, uh, you know, the, the, the narrative is not a good guy, bad guy narrative. It's what countries can do 
what their limitations are in terms of introducing renewables or cutting down on coal. And, um, and if you don't vilify specific use and kind of, of, of coal versus renewables, but look at this from the systemic perspective, that helps the dialogue and helps countries set up specific programs between the developed and developing world and 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 uh, collaborations that can help going forward. I mean, there is a lot of, while the developing world doesn't have probably as much fund for R&D, the uh, the brain resources or the, 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 the you know the resources in terms of people people resources the, are enormous there mm-hmm. so why not to use those researchers and scientists you know who who live in the developing world who might otherwise not have the funds to 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 develop their research towards more sustainable less co2 intensive future um, why not to fund them and so on so that there is a lot of ways in which this can be done as long as countries kind of step back from from identifying something as bad or good but rather kind of identifying what uh, what the problems are mm-hmm. what it's at the root of countries using coal natural gas and renewables and when you know what the root is then it's easier to kind of figure out of solutions or understand mm-hmm. countries uh, policies mm-hmm. You've noted a shifting energy dialogue around fossil fuels and climate. What specifically are you referring to? So you can actually see that shift in several uh, regards. Uh, you see that shift uh, with respect how companies, um, oil and gas companies, have been talking about you know uh, their future. You've seen a shift uh, on that side to you know to more sustainable solutions to uh, programs that, for example, limit methane emissions and so on. Um, even during this big, uh, you know, conferences, and uh, when I was at the International Petroleum Week in London um, earlier this year, uh, actually people have noted that the energy conference that used to be kind of one where companies would say, "Oh, we have these new resources, we're gonna get this much and this much oil out of the ground, this much and this not natural gas of the ground, because we have these fi- these new finds in that area." This actually has changed. You haven't seen much bragging about this. You actually have seen companies talking about how they're going to adjust to new, less carbon-intensive future and how they're going to help going forward. So that's one. Um, and that's based on the switch or the change in how stakeholders have been approaching climate change. So you've seen the shift in, you know, among the stakeholders. Is it the public? Is it the, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who hold the stocks? Um, and companies do react to this. Then second, you will see in the different outlooks, uh, you see the change that almost from this kind of too positive of an attitude where, you know what, we can cut our emissions, we can do it, we can in, we will be in no time, we will be at the two degrees Celsius that we've promised in, the, in Paris. This has also changed. Uh, we've seen that in the newest IEA outlook, in the BP outlook, and also nowadays there's two studies that have just came out um, that actually are showing that even if the biggest emitters really rad- radically, like US or China, radically cut emissions, um, it's pretty much almost impossible without huge sacrifice on, uh, on the part of the other countries to reach that two Celsius goal. 
And that's kind of, you know, that's that's quite pessimistic and maybe to an extent depressing, but it also creates realistic expectation and like what and it makes us think what can we do? So this this dialogue or this approach is changing. On one side, you see the energy industry kind of coming to terms with the fact that the world is changing, the expectations are changing, the climate change is much and more much more accepted um, in terms of you know uh, scientific uh, proofs and so on. So it's adapting. But on the other hand, you kind of go away from this too optimistic of a way we we can you can, we can switch to renewables tomorrow or we can we can just you know if we only want to we can cut our emissions and so on while some countries can cut emissions and can bear the cost you know, thinking about you know europe or us the uh, their populations are wealthier they can bear the cost of higher electricity costs and so on so we can we can cut those emissions this is not the case for many of the developing world where people do still do not have access to any electricity, where they still cooking on the stoves, you know, in, in, on a, that that basically poisoning them because they they highly emitting and they, they emit it within their own uh, houses. So it's 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 not as easy, but I think it's good that we come to terms and we almost kind of move from the two extremes that we've seen uh, more to a middle which is much more realist, based on reality. And I think it's easier. In, by that, it's easier to think of solutions that we can actually try to find. Anna, thanks for talking. Thank you so much for having me. Today's guest has been Anna Mikulska, Senior Fellow with the Climate Center for Energy Policy and non-resident scholar with the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. You can find Anna's report on coal use, The Long Goodbye, Why Some Nations Can't Kick the Coal Habit, on the Climate Center's website. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. For updates on research and events from the Center, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 